0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Abayomi azikawe and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe uh, Today uh, is Wednesday, uh, December 27th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners. But tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire reports. We'll have dispatches on the Yemeni armed forces uh, saying that they are at the ready for any uh, potential uh, attack uh, by the United States. The Hamas resistance forces are continuing uh, to carry out uh, their attacks on the israeli defense forces in gaza also uh, there's been a russian-made rocket propelled grenade introduced to the uh, battlefield in gaza as well and of course u.s uh, bases are being hit uh, by iraqi resistance forces in the northern region of the country in the second and third hours uh, we listened to a panel discussion from Electronic Intifada, one of the primary sources on the situation in Palestine, uh, discussing uh, some of the most uh, recent and breaking news items from uh, the Gaza Strip and throughout Palestine and the entire West Asia region. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, We'll take our musical interlude. We'll be back uh, with more of the Pan African
2: Journal
3: for
2: this week. the في هذه الليله العظيمه جديد من الذي لا ينضب ومن فنرتوي ونسعد ونفرح وساعات العمر تعبرنا سراء ونحن مع فن ام كلثوم حتى يتصل الليل بالنهار في لقاء رائع مثير ويحملنا هذا اللقاء الثاني الى لون اخر من الغناء ستقدمه ام كلثوم في حفل الليلة ولكل لقاء مع أمو دائما طعمه الخاص ولونه الخاص ومذاقته الخاصة وحلاوته التي يتميز بها كل لقاء اللقاء الثاني مع القصيدة التي عاشت بين دواوين الشعر العربي قرابة الف عام والتي منحت من الخلود الكثير والكثير حتى اتيح لها المزيد من الخلود عندما حملها صوت ام كلثوم الى الملايين في كل مكان فعادت القصيرة من جديد الى كل الالسنة والى كل الاسماع وإلى كل القلوب عادت على صوت ام كلثوم فكتب للقصيرة من البقاء الشيء الكثير سيداتي وسادتي لقاؤنا الثاني في حفل ليلة الساهر مع قصيرة أراك عصي الدمع التي كتبها الشاعر والفارس العربي فارس بني حمدان ابو فراس الحمداني والتي اعادت الحينها الموسيقار الكبير رياض الصنباطي فكانت احياء لقصيرة عريقة وكانت اعادة لاثارها المتجدده في القلوب مع كل نفس ومع كل روح وانها للفتة ذكية من لفتات ام كلثوم التي حمل صوتها من جديد هذه القصيدة الرائعة والتي سبق ان تغنت بها منذ اكثر من عشرين عاما عادت لتقدمها من جديد الى ملايين المستمعين الذين ربما لم يتخلهم ان يعيشوا مع اللحن الاول فساعدوا بان عايشوا مولد اللحن الثاني الذي وضعه الموسيقار الكبير رياض الصنباطي وشاعر هذه القصيدة فارس بني حمدان ابو فراس الحمداني شاعر عربي اصيل من حلب العربيه الاصيله امتدت كلماته منذ اكثر من الف عام لتعبر عن الروح العربية الاصيله التي تحيا مع الكبرياء والتي ترفض ان تعترف بالدمع والتي تفهم الحب على انه اخذ وعطاء وشمم وكبرياء عربية اصيلة الشاعر الذي اسر في معاركنا العربية القديمة مع الروم فكان اسره وكان سجنه الطويل ميلادا لعديد من القصائد العربية الخالدة التي اخذت مكانها في سجل الشعر العربي القديم والتي عاشت مع الزمان جيلا بعد جيل ثم كتب لها المزيد من الخلود حينما اختارتها ام كلثوم لتقدمها لمستمعي هذا الزمان الذين ساعدوا بان كانوا في عصر ام كلثوم والذين ساعدوا بان سمعوا من الوان الغناء كل ما هو رائع ومبدع الغناء الذي كتبه شعراء معاصرون كالوصلة الاولى التي استمعنا اليها من تأليف مرسي جميل عزيز والغناء الذي كتبه شعراء عرب وصلة كفارس بني حمدان ابي فراس الحمداني سيرتي وثارتي في وصلتنا الثانية مع القصيدة العربية الاصيلة اراك عصية دمع مع عودة الى النفس العربي الاصيل تقدمه ام كلثوم في حفل ليلة الساهر وتسمع الطرقات التقليدية الى جوار المسرح وتسلط الأضواء على التفارة الحمراء التي تنفرج الآن عن أم كلثوم جالسة على المسرح ومن خلفها الفرقة الموسيقية التي ستصاحبها في وسطها الغنائية الثانية مع قصيدة أراك عصية شعر الشاعر العربي القديم أبي فراس الحمداني وتلحين الموسيقار الكبير رياض الصنباطي Oh, <music>
4: And um, i um. na you you
5: إذا الليل
4: أضواني بصدت يد الليل أضواني يد الهوى
5: إذا الليل
4: أضواني بصدت يد الزوى إذا الليل أضواني بصدت يد الزوى وأزلت دمان من خلال أضواني بسطت يد الغوا بسطت يد الغوا وأزللت دمعان. ذا الليل اضواني بسطت يدا الله في الليل اضواني بسطت يدا الله واجلى الضوامه لائطه الكبر إذا
5: الليل
4: أضوانك بصدت ضواني بسطت يدان اذا اللين اطواني بسطت يدان لخوه هو ازلا من خلى do do do, do. بالوصل والموت دونه بالوصل والموت دونه you اشتركوا <تصفيق> وفي بعض الوفائ مزلة لفاتنة في الحي شمس غل غدر وفي وفي بعض الوفائ مزلة لفاتنة في الحي شمس غل وفيت وفي بعض الوفاء مزلة لفاتنة في الحيش متغى الغدر تسائلني من أن تسايلني من أنت وهي عليمة
5: تسايلني
4: من أن تسايلني من أنت وهي عليمة وهل لشجن مثلي على we في بعض الوفاء مزلة لفاتنة في الحي شيمتها الغادر وفيت وفي بعض الوفاء مزلة لفاتنة في الحي شيمتها الغادر وفيت وفي بعض
5: أنت
4: من أنت عليمة تسائلني, تسائلني من أنت وهي عليمه وهل شجن مثلي على حاله نكر تسائلني من أنت وي عليمة تسائلني تسائلني من أن تسائلني من أن وهي عليمة تسائلني من أن وهي عليمه وهل مثل مثلي ما
5: شاءت
4: وشاء لها وا فقلت كما قَتِيلُكِ قالت أيهم فهم فقلت كما شاء وشاء لها الهواء فقلت كما شاء وشاء
2: سيداتي وسادتي سابقى دائما للتاريخ هذا الفضل الكبير لام كلثوم فضلها على الشعر العربي عشرات من القصائد من عيون الشعر العربي ظلت مئات السنين عبيسه مخبوءه بين الكثير من دواوين الشعر العربي حتى التقطها صوت ام فحملها هذا الصوت المجنح الى الملايين ملايين الاسماع وملايين القلوب في كل مكان ظلت هذه القصائد بعيدة عن الانظار بعيدة عن التداول حتى حملها من جديد هذا الصوت الاسر فاكتبها من جديد حياة واكتبها من جديد حسن تناول وفهم وتذوق فعاشت الكلمة العربية على صوت ام كلثوم متنقله من شفة الى شفه ومن فم الى فم بل لقد كان الصعب من هذه الكلمات ينساب على صوت ام كلثوم فاذا بالقلوب تتلقفه قبل العقول وإذا بالوجدانات والأعماق تتلقف كل كلمة من هذه الكلمات قبل أن تستقر في الأذن وترتاح في الأذن سيظل ويبقى على طول التاريخ هذا الفضل لأم كلسوم على هذه القصائد من عيون الشعر العربي وسيبقى ايضا للتاريخ دور هذا الموسيقار الكبير رياض الصنباطي الذي حملت الحانه هذه الكلمات فكان هذا اللقاء العظيم بين الصوت واللحن والكلمة العربية في اعلى مستوياتها وفي ابعد افاقها شمولا وعمقا وإحاطة. سيداتي وسادتي في وصلتها الغنائية الثانية في حفلنا هذا الساهر الذي ننقله لكم من مسرح حديقة الاسبكية بالقاهرة كنتم وكنا مع القصيدة العربية الخالدة قصيدة أراك عصية الدمع التي كتبها فارس بني حمدان وشاعرها ابو فراس الحمداني والتي اعادت الحينها من جديد الموسيقار الكبير رياض السنباطي من مسرح والى لقاء بعد عودتنا الى الإذاعة بالقاهرة.
3: Welcome back and you're listening to the Pan African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast, for uh, today uh which is uh the early morning hours of Thursday, uh December the twenty ninth, uh, twenty twenty three. And uh we're broadcasting uh from our studios in downtown Detroit. And um, we'd like to uh, move into our Pan African Newswire segment of our program. And uh these are some of the uh headlines uh in today's uh Pan African Newswire. The situation uh, that is going on uh, right now, Uh, and And the Yemeni armed forces forces, uh, uh, are fairly to deliver deliver the most most severe, powerful blow to the enemies of the the government government in Sanaa. And of course, um, there are many other. Uh, developments uh, taking place uh, throughout the uh, West uh, Asia region. And, of course, we're going to start with the situation uh, in Yemen. Uh, The Minister of Interior in the Sana'a government affirms that all security forces are on high alert. The Minister of Defense in the Sana'a government, uh, Major General Mohammed Al-Atifi, stated that Yemen has numerous strategic options uh, that will not hesitate uh, to uh, u- utilize when necessary. Al-Atif announced the readiness of the Yemeni armed forces of all units and military formations to deliver the most severe and powerful blows to the enemies in their crimes and siege uh, on the Palestinian people persist or if they contemplate undermining the security and sovereignty of Yemen. His statement came uh, during an extraordinary meeting of the armed forces and security in the sanaa government uh, that took place on yesterday uh, to address the latest developments and updates in the region and the developments of the american and israeli aggression against the palestinian people in other news uh, since october 7th hamas and other resistance factions continue to fire rockets at israel nearly every day uh, aiming Deep uh, inside the occupied territories, Hamas, alongside other resistance factions, persist in launching rockets at Israel, targeting major settlements. That's according to even mainstream publications such as the New York Times. Since October 7th, uh, approximately 12,000 rockets have been fired from Gaza into Israel, with a quarter of them on the mentioned date as reported uh, by the Israeli occupation government. It is also clear that the ongoing attacks demonstrate the extent of Hamas's arsenal and its ability to threaten areas far from Gaza. It added, uh, while rocket attacks have been a longstanding concern in southern Israel along the Gaza border, the war has made air raid sirens a common experience for Israelis across the occupied territories, as per uh, the report. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Also in Gaza, the Schmel RPO-A is an anti-fortification shoulder-launch rocket with an effective range of 300 meters. In a first, Hamas Al-Qasim brigades announced introducing a new rocket, which entered into the service in Gaza recently to confront invading Israeli forces. The RPO-A rocket A Russian-made anti-fortification shell, known as Shmel, was used uh, for the first time when targeting an Israeli special forces unit stationed in a house on Old Gaza Street uh, in Jabalia, the resistance group stated. The attack uh, resulted in casualties among occupation soldiers, both killed and wounded. It has maximum range of 950 meters, with an effective range of 300 meters. In a separate statement, the Al Qasim announced targeting two Israeli helicopters with surface-to-air S-18 missiles, one in Saftawi area north of Gaza City and the other east of Jabalia refugee camp. Furthermore, the group said its fighters engaged with an Israeli force in Saftiwa uh, for six consecutive hours uh, last evening. Confrontation saw the resistance using Shawaz anti-tank explosives and Al Yassin 105 shells, in addition to TGB anti-fortification shells. The heavy fighting forced the occupation soldiers to call in a helicopter to cover the retreat of their troops. And uh, finally, in Iraq, the resistance group said it targeted the base using a drone and confirmed a direct hit. The Islamic resistance in Iraq published footage uh, documenting the launch of a drone targeting a U.S. military base near Erbil Airport in northern Iraq. In a statement, the group confirmed that it had targeted the base with a drone, reaffirming its commitment to strike the enemy strongholds. Last Wednesday, the United States announced this attack. Police facilities allegedly uh, belonging to the Qatab Hezbollah in Iraq and linked resistance groups. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin stated that the strikes came in response to an operation carried out by the resistance two days prior, targeting a U.S. military base in Iraqi Kurdistan, Erbil, which resulted in the injury of three American soldiers. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment uh, of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the pan-african newswire is an international electronic press service it is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of african people throughout the continent and the world the press agency was founded in january of 1998 uh, since then it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers uh, magazines journals research reports and on blogs and websites throughout the world the pan-african newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. And if you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and uh, that is at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access to uh, today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for uh, Wednesday, uh, December 27th, in the early morning hour of Thursday, uh, December 28th, uh, 2023, uh, just go to our website. And uh, that is at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for uh, this week. Welcome, Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And that was the music of Holland And he was singing the track entitled Moaning at Daybreak. And right now we want to move into our panel discussion from Electronic Intifada. This is day 82 of the Siege on Gaza. Let's listen in.
0: And welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, December 27th. Thank you all for tuning in and welcome to our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 82 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. Today, Ali will be talking about his new report that he co-wrote with reporter David Sheen on some brand new details about how Israeli forces killed their own civilians in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th. And of course, we'll have John with an extensive military analysis and some of the latest videos made by the Palestinian resistance, so stay tuned. But first, a look at some of the news over the last few days. Over the Christmas holiday, Israel continued to heavily bombard areas across the Gaza Strip by land, air, and sea. Video obtained by Al Jazeera showed the immense destruction by Israeli forces of the Sheikh Radwan neighborhood in the northern Gaza Strip. In the middle of Gaza, Israeli forces carried out more than 50 individual strikes on three refugee camps, Al-Burej, Nuserat and Maghazi camp where at least 70 people were killed and dozens were injured. Israel also destroyed the roads connecting the camps, which impacted the delivery of relief aid to those in need, according to the United Nations. A resident of Maghazi spoke to our contributor Gada Abed about his search for his loved ones amidst the rebel. Our reporter wrote, quote, With every step amid the ruins of their home, he sought to find the bodies of his parents, siblings, and their children. The rebel was so heavy that recovering their bodies was impossible. Quote, I survived, the man said, his voice trembling with grief, but I don't know where my parents and brothers are. Another resident said, quote, we will always remember this night, December 24th. It is the bloodiest in Maghazi since the war began. You can read more by Gada Abed on the massacre in Maghazi on electronicintifada.net. On Christmas Day in Gaza, Israeli media published a video reportedly showing Israeli forces detaining hundreds of Palestinians inside Al-Yarmouk football stadium in Gaza City, according to the UN. The videos show the detainees, including children, older people, and persons with disabilities being forced to strip to their underwear in degrading conditions, the UN said. The Geneva-based Euromed Human Rights Monitor submitted a primary, primary report to UN officials and the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court on Monday, documenting, quote, dozens of cases of field executions carried out by the Israeli army in the Gaza Strip. The human rights group said, quote, that they requested an immediate investigation into these crimes, calling for the perpetrators to be held accountable and for justice for all victims. Here is one such video testimony filmed by Al Jazeera of a man witnessing a summary execution of his brother in front of his mother in Jibalia camp.
6: I am a UN staff. Unfortunately, they don't have mercy on the UN staff or any international organization staff. I live in this apartment with my family. The sniper went there and the tanks came to this area. I told them in Hebrew that we are only civilians in this building but they shot us. My son, my niece and a third one. I kept telling them we need to be treated, but no way. They continued their shooting. They broke the gates and they brought us down. They told us to take our clothes off and then told us to come to this area. I told them there were some injured people here, but they didn't care. They asked me if I'm a UN staff. I told them yes. They took me with them and interrogated me four times. They accused me of being a member of Hamas and I'm not. They asked me where I was on October 7th. I said I was at home, preparing myself to go to my school. They left the children bleeding for more than an hour. They told me that the resistance fighters used to shoot from our house. And of course, that is not true at all they killed my brother in front of my mother they shot him from under his chin hitting his entire skull they didn't allow me to say goodbye to my dead brother they kept asking me if i'm a hamas member i told them no i'm not i blame the un because the un staff have no protection the israeli forces burnt my house why did they do that i'm not a resistance fighter finally they gave us a paper that says we are okay and that we didn't do anything wrong we were humiliated my brother was killed my children wounded for no reason what's our fault what's the fault of the civilians
7: On
0: Tuesday, video testimonies by Palestinian detainees who had been taken to Israel and then reportedly released back into Gaza through the Kerem Shalom crossing were released to the media. The UN said that, quote, detainees, including older persons, alleged that they had been tortured and ill-treated in captivity, with video footage showing bruises and burns on their bodies. They also reported being deprived of food, water, and access to toilets and being exposed to the elements. Meanwhile, top Israeli lawmakers are openly advocating that Palestinians be, quote, voluntarily migrated from Gaza. The Electronic Intifada's senior editor, Maureen Murphy, reported that Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, had, quote, told lawmakers from his Likud party in recent days that he is pushing for the voluntary migration of Palestinians in Gaza. He said that the challenge was finding, quote, countries that are willing to absorb them, and we are working on it. Maureen writes that, quote, voluntary migration is euphemistic language for a coerced mass expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza a proposal made by senior Israeli politicians such as finance minister Bezalel Smotrich throughout the war. Removing Palestinians from their homeland so that they may be replaced by foreign Jewish settlers has always been the single organizing principle of the state of Israel. Israel's military operations in Gaza, which have rendered the territory unsuitable for sustaining human life by destroying housing, medical facilities, and other essential infrastructure, appear to be aimed at forcing an expulsion on that same scale or even greater, Maureen reports. Israel's evacuation orders are pushing Gaza's population of 2.3 million Palestinians to an increasingly narrow coastal area near the Egyptian border. That was from our senior editor Maureen Murphy's new piece, Netanyahu Boasts of Voluntary Migration as Horrors Are Revealed in Gaza's North, up now on electronicintifada.net. And finally, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces killed two Palestinians, including a 17-year-old child, Ahmad Mohammed Yusuf Yagi, and injured two others, shooting them with live ammunition during a raid into the El Fawar refugee camp in Hebron on Tuesday. Since October 7th, 295 Palestinians, including 77 children, have been killed in the occupied West Bank, including East Jerusalem, according to the UN. Well, we'll now take a look at a new investigation published by the Electronic Intifada about what really happened on October 7th. We reveal how an Israeli general ordered tanks to fire on a house with Israeli civilians in it that day in Kibbutz Be'eri, and then tried to cover the incident up with a fake story of heroism. Now, relatives of those he killed are demanding the truth. That general, Barak Hiram, also appears to have originated one of the most poisonous fabrications Israel told about October 7th, the atrocity tale that Hamas fighters tied up and executed children in cold blood. That lie, told directly to President Biden by Benjamin Netanyahu, helped lay the ground for genocide. Ali, you wrote this piece with investigative journalist David Sheen that sheds more light on what happened on October 7th, particularly how Israel killed many of its own people on that day. Walk us through these new revelations.
8: Thanks, Nora. Yes. uh, As you know, this is a story we've been on since the very first day, and it's a central part of what happened on October 7th that mainstream media continue to pretend not to see. But important new pieces of information have come out in Israeli media over the last uh, week or two weeks that really add to uh, what we know.
0: And there's both new video evidence and new testimony, is that right?
8: Yes. Uh, first, in terms of the video, just last week, Israel's Channel 12 uh, released a video shot from an Israeli military helicopter on October 7th over Kibbutz Be'eri. That's one of the Israeli colonial settlements just a few miles east of Gaza. And um, we can actually take a look at that now. And This is uh, uh, was...
9: מה שאני רואה בביירי, אז זה שמקדיש אשתו בחלק הטפוני.
2: הפעם
4: הראשונה מאז השבוע באוקטובר. אנחנו מקבלים איזDNUT נדירה
0: ליראות מי למה לא תסרגדה של קיבוץ ביירי. פה יש אקוחות ותש韦ה קיבוץ ראו אותה בזמנת. בשעה ארבעה ועשרים אחרי יותר מתשע שעות אחרי שחדר לי ביירי מאוחס מחבלים. שחוטות של בקיבוץ עולות באש.
9: באיש. אני צופה עכשיו לביירי, לחלק הטלני. אני רואה מוקד חשัน בחלק, בחלק הטלני מהרבים מול הבית הלבן. שם זה הקרקוליים, הסופים?
8: היומי,
4: היומי. את זה חושף לפנינו את כף הלחימה. ומספר המחבלים מבילתית פסוי ישתלטו על הקיבוץ. So what you see there?
8: Uh, there's a lot of smoke rising. We'll keep running the video while I speak uh, from houses in the kibbutz. But now for the first time, you actually saw the flashes in the video. You see an Israeli tank rolling through the streets of the kibbutz and actually firing a shell into one of the houses. And the woman you see there speaking briefly is Yasmin Parat, And I think a lot of people will remember that name. I'll come back to Yasmin in a minute. But what I want to emphasize here is that what we know is this was not the only tank used in Kibbutz Be'eri on October 7th, and this was not the only shot fired. It's just the only shot that so far we've seen uh, on video. As David Sheen and I uh, write in our article, another tank showed up a short time later and fired towards that particular house, killing a number of the Israeli civilians there, along with all the Palestinians, or almost all of them, including the partner of Yasmin Parat and a little, a little Israeli girl called Liel Hatzroni, uh, and the husband of an Israeli woman called There were, in fact, 15 captives at that house, along with several dozen Palestinian fighters, and all 15 of the Israeli captives were killed, except for Hadass Dagan and Yasmin Parat. Now, we already knew a lot of this from Yasmin Parat's early interview on Israeli state radio back on October 15th, which went viral after the electronic intifada translated it. Parat told about how the Palestinians holding the Israelis there had treated them really humanely and assured them that they would be safe. And you can see her again in this little clip talking about her immediate fears and doubts when she saw Israeli forces rolling up with a tank right outside the house where her own partner and the other civilians were. But it was indeed the Israeli forces who showed up and started firing heavily and who ended up killing everyone there, uh, according to uh, Yasmin Perat.
0: Right. And and now Hadass Dagan has spoken out herself.
8: That's right. Uh, earlier this month, she gave her first interview to Israeli television, along with relatives of some of the other Israelis who were killed uh, at that house when the Israeli tanks opened fire. So here's just a short clip of Hadassah Dagan speaking to Israel's Channel 12, and this was on December 9th. <laughs>
10: Yeah. yeah,
8: and there you see that, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, well, uh, we've, we've also learned more about the Israeli officer who ordered that particular tank shelling. Um, uh, he's the Brigadier General Barak Hiram. What did you and David Sheen um, find out about him?
8: Yeah, General Barak Hiram is a fairly senior Israeli military officer. He's held a number of prestigious commands and has, in fact, been named as the next commander of the Gaza Division. That's the same Israeli division that was supposed to guard the perimeter around Gaza, but which was virtually destroyed and simply collapsed uh, when attacked by the Palestinian resistance on October seventh. And Barak Hiram has tried to portray what happened in uh, Kibbutz Spery, in a completely different and false manner, uh, covering up how his order killed Israelis, uh, and of course he's tried to portray himself uh, in a in a heroic manner. He was uh, he portrays himself as having just uh, rushed to the scene and taken charge and and basically saved the day. And he made these claims in an interview with. Ilana Dayan, one of Israel's top investigative journalists. And here's Hiram speaking to Dayan, and this was in an interview broadcast uh, on Israel's Channel 12 uh, on October 26. Let's take a look.
9: בשלב הזה גם יש כוח של ימם שהכנסנו מפנים על היישוב, ותוך כדי שהוא מתאר את השכונה שהוא קיבל, אחת האזרחיות מצליחה לברוח מהמבנים, ונוצרת איזושהי דינמיקה או תחושה שהמחבלים שמתבצרים שם בתוך הבלוק מוחנים אולי אה, לדבר או משהו כזה. לנהל מסר מתן. לכאורה. ואפילו מגיע צוות אה, מום אה, מתכלי שמנסה ליצור איתם קשר ולקרוז. אמונים? אמונים לנו בתיל RPG. ו... ובשלב הזה אני מאשר למפקד הכוח של הימם שהיה שם לפרוץ פנימה ולנסות להציל את האזרחים שכלויים אה, בתוך אותם מבנים. זאת אומרת, כשהכוח של הימה מנהל שם באמת קרב גבורה ומסתער פנימה, עוד יש איזושהי תקווה שאולי יש
2: פני הרובה שאפשר לחלץ?
9: אני חושב שבבלוק הזה היו כ-20 אזרחים, ואני חושב שכוח הימים מצליח להציל את זה, ארבעה מהם. כל היתר נרצחו בדם קר. כמה חבים בדעתך היו רק במתחם הזה? בספירת הגופות הגענו ל-26 מחבלים. Right let's uh, let's
8: run that again without the sound if we can. Uh, uh, I'd like to just summarize the points he made because there may be people listening, and so. As you can see here, he's talking to Ilana Dayan, and she's kind of walking him through. She says there were no hostages, and he talks about what happened, that the commanders were on the scene, that they brought into Kibbutz Beri, and while purifying the neighborhood, that's the term they use for their violence, one of the citizens manages to flee. Now, that's a reference to Yasmin Porat actually leaving uh, under negotiations, And he gives the impression that uh, negotiations were impossible and he gives the order to the commandos to rush in uh, and save the day. So on his order, after the negotiations fail and the terrorists, as he calls them, respond with an RPG, he authorizes the commandos, the imam, to burst inside and to try to save the citizens trapped in those buildings. And then the Yamam waged a truly heroic battle, according to Ilana Dayan, and charge inside. And he claims that there were about 20 uh, citizens inside. There were, in fact, 15. And he claims the commando saved four of them. And then Ilana Dayan says all the rest were murdered, murdered in cold blood. And then... uh, uh, Barak Hiram goes into these details where he claims we found eight children tied together and shot and a couple, a husband and wife tied together and shot and uh, that, and then Elana Dayan asserts that there were no uh, actual hostages because everyone had been murdered. So now there are a couple of outrageously false statements that uh, David Sheen and I detail in the article. First, there were in fact extensive negotiations with the Palestinians inside and that had led to the surrender of one of the Palestinian commanders along with Yasmin Porat. And there was another officer on the scene who was arguing with Hiram that force should not be used at that point anyway and that negotiations should continue because As uh, we had seen, uh, Yasmin Parat and this Palestinian had come out due to the negotiations. The second outrageous lie is that the Yamam, the Israeli commando force, went into the house to rescue hostages and, in fact, rescued four people. This is pure fiction. There was no rescue attempt by the commandos, and it was uh, Barak Hiram's order to fire that ensured that everyone still alive among the captives, was killed except for Hadass uh, Hadass Dagan. So that is a complete fabrication. There was no rescue attempt. He made that up. But perhaps the most consequential lie is uh, Hiram's claim that uh, the captives were tied up and executed in cold blood. This is a pure fabrication. As we detail in our article, this did not happen in this incident, and there's no evidence that it happened anywhere else.
0: And why do you say that this is the most consequential lie? There's so many. Why is this the most consequential one?
8: Well, David Sheen and I believe that uh, Barak Hiram's story that uh, he started telling very early on, before this interview with uh, Ilana Dayan, is the origin of one of the major lies that Israel has been telling about uh, October 7th. It's a fabricated atrocity tale that Israel used and is still using to justify and incite genocide. A lot of people believe this. And here's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu speaking on October 9th. So this is very early on. Let's take a look.
10: savage attacks that Hamas perpetrated against innocent Israelis are mind-boggling slaughtering families in their homes, massacring hundreds of young people at an outdoor festival, kidnapping scores of women, children, and elderly, even Holocaust survivors. Hamas terrorists bound, burned, and executed children. They are savages.
8: Yeah, and then, now here's another clip. This is from October 11th, and it's a clip of Netanyahu speaking to President Joe on the phone.
10: Uh, Joe, I want to give you a clear picture of the difficult situation we face. We were struck sat- Saturday by uh, an attack whose savagery I could say we have not seen since the Holocaust. I mean, we had hundreds massacred, families wiped out in their beds and their homes, women brutally raped and murdered, over 100 Kidnapped, including children, and since we last spoke, the extent of this evil—it's only gotten worse. They—they they took dozens of children, bound them up, burned them, and executed them.
8: And uh, look, here is Netanyahu in writing on uh, on Twitter on Christmas Eve, so just a few days ago, and. Uh, he says there in his tweet, we're facing monsters, monsters who murdered children in front of their parents and parents in front of their children, who raped and beheaded women, who burned babies alive, who took babies hostage. As you can see, he repeats a whole series of genocidal lies. Uh, This didn't happen. They didn't High babies up. They didn't rape and behead women. We did a segment a couple of weeks ago on the mass rape claims in the total absence of any credible evidence of that. So there's no claiming that Netanyahu was just going off uh, confused reports or the so-called fog of war in the early days on and after October 7th. His latest statements show that this is a deliberate campaign of lies of incitement uh, to genocide. And right there under his tweet that we just showed, uh, you could see that other users of of X or Twitter were posting notes pointing out that these are lies. So that's just one of the ways that uh, people can try to point out the truth. Of course, that pales next to the, the kind of megaphone and platform Netanyahu has, and even more so, President Biden, who has been repeating these lies constantly. The difference, I think, between Netanyahu and Biden is that Netanyahu knows he is lying, while Biden probably believes these lies. Of course, that's not an excuse. I think it's just the reality of the severely degraded capacities of the so-called leadership in the White House.
0: Yeah. Um, What about any fallout over this uh, inside Israel. What is what, what can you tell us about that?
8: Yes, as I said, relatives of the Israelis who were killed by uh, General Barak Hiram are demanding an investigation. They were interviewed by uh, Channel 12 and publicly called for an investigation. They said, we don't know what happened here. We don't know why our loved ones were killed, who gave the order to open fire, and so on. Uh, but they really has been a closing of the ranks within the Israeli leadership. There was a big story about Kibbutz Be'eri just a couple of days ago. This was on December 22nd. And it's mostly a whitewash, which is what you'd expect from the New York Times. But it does mention in passing that the tank shell ordered uh, to be fired by Barak Hiram, killed the husband of Hadass, Dagan, and uh, as you can see there, that's that's David Sheen and I wrote a whole article about this. The New York Times managed a few sentences about what is really the most telling part of this whole episode in Kibbutz Fairey. And that uh, New York Times report, whitewashed though it is, prompted some criticism in Israel. But we've seen major figures, including former Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and even Israel's military spokesperson, John Conricas, have come out to publicly back Barak Iram. So he has a lot of support to cover up this crime. And it's doubtful that there'll be any real accountability within Israel, at least for the foreseeable future.
0: Of course. <clears throat> Excuse me, but Ali, um, this was this tank shelling at Kibbutz Beeri just an isolated incident? Was it some kind of aberration or is there you know, a bigger story here in terms of uh, Israel killing its own soldiers and civilians on October 7th, knowing about it and, and of course, covering it up.
8: Yeah, Uh, you know, that's a question a lot of people ask and they say, oh, well, this is just one little incident. It's it's, uh, still have all these hundreds of people who were killed by Hamas. uh, So this, this little incident doesn't change the picture. But even in Kibbutz Berry, the incident at the house where Yasmin Parat and Hadass Dagan were held, along with uh, all those other people who were killed, is not the whole story. It's a part of the story we now know well because uh, because Yasmin Parat and Hadass Dagan lived to tell the tale, but it is not the whole story. As David Sheen and I write, we also know that Israeli forces only use tanks in Kibbutz Beri, but Apache combat helicopters as well. And here's Erez Tidhar, an Israeli rescuer who was in Kibbutz Beri that day, describing what he saw there. <laughs>
2: כדי לצייר את הסיטואציה, אתה בקיבוץ בתוך מדינת ישראל, שאני שם הילדים כל דקה יורד עליך טיל, כל דקה. פתאום <מתאר> אתה טיל ממסוק שיורא לתוך הקיבוץ. <מתאר> אבל לא הבנתי. מסוק צהלי יורא לתוך קיבוץ ישראלי, ואז אתה טנק נוסע ברחובות הקיבוץ, את אותך ויורלת פגז בתוך בית. That you can't and then...
8: hmm. yeah let's let's if we can, Tamara, let's run that again without the sound, and I'm going to read the subtitles because I know that there are some people who are just listening, uh, and so just so they can read the, the subtitles, I'm going to read uh, the subtitles of Erez Tatar, who is the rescuer who was there. uh keep yeah, just let it run. Let, let's let the video run. This is Erez Tidhar, uh, who is there with something called the ATAM Rescue and Evacuation Unit. And I'll say more about that in a, in a second. Uh, here we go. He says, you're sitting in a kibbutz inside the state of Israel where I tour on Saturdays with the kids on bikes. Every minute a missile comes down on you, every minute. And suddenly you see a missile from a helicopter that fires into the kibbutz. You say to yourself, I don't get it. An IDF helicopter firing an into new, an Israeli kibbutz, then you see a tank driving through the streets and firing a shell into the house. These are things you cannot comprehend. So then let's take a look uh, at this photo from Kibbutz Beri. This is a photo from a news agency that uh, we purchased the license to, to publish at the Electronic Intifada. And look at this. There's obviously no way Palestinian fighters could have caused such total destruction with the light weapons they had, AK-47 assault rifles, and a few RPGs.
0: Right. Um, w- what about in other places aside from Kibbutz Be'eri?
8: Right. Well, we know this was the story across the region on October 7th. Let me remind you that in November, an Israeli police source admitted that military helicopters shot at civilians at the supernova rave, the desert dance party near uh, Kibbutz Ferry that Yasmin Porat and her partner had attended. And Nof Erez, an Israeli Air Force colonel, has even gone as far as to call the Israeli response to October 7th a mass Hannibal. That's an application on a wide scale of Israel's so-called Hannibal Directive, a military doctrine that allows the deliberate killing of Israel's own people rather than permitting them to be taken captive. And that same month, Israel revealed that hundreds of unrecognizably burned bodies it thought were its own civilians were actually Hamas fighters, a clear admission of indiscriminate fire from helicopters on a massive scale. And earlier this month, the Israeli, admitted, uh, the Israeli military admitted to immense quantities of so-called friendly fire incidents on October 7th, but asserted that it would not be morally sound to investigate them, as the Israeli newspaper Yedi'at Ahronat reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, moreover, Israel has faced huge international embarrassment and anger at home after its army admitted to killing three Israeli prisoners who had managed to get away from their captors in Gaza. We have links to all of these other stories in the piece that uh, David, Sheen, and I wrote. The key thing here is that the truth has been coming out really in bits and pieces. But unless there is a full independent inquiry, we probably will not get the full picture. But we at the Electronic Intifada will continue to pursue the story as far as we can.
0: Absolutely. Um, And yeah, I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to go to the Electronic Intifada and read uh, the piece that you and David wrote, Israeli General killed Israelis on 7 October, then lied about it. Is published on Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th. So, um, yeah, encourage everyone to read it. And, uh, there are much, much more details. Uh, and, and I think all of the, the videos and evidence, uh, that we just saw here are also embedded in that piece. Thank you, Ali. Um, and, uh, before we go to John with the Jelly Bean segment, um, I know that you had a, an important announcement, uh, about uh, supporting EI and our writers in Gaza.
8: Thanks, Dora. I'll just say I came into the office this morning. And I, I found <laughs> these jelly beans. I really don't know where they came from. <laughs> but um, let me, uh, yes, I, let me take this opportunity to once again thank all our viewers and supporters. Uh, it's really overwhelming. Some of you know that I am uh, making it through my email and, and uh, I'm reading everything and I am replying to everything, it's just taking me time, and uh, it's it's wonderful to read all the messages of support, and I'm sharing them with uh, some of them with um, all my colleagues. And I, I want to take the opportunity uh, also, you know, you know me, and you know Nora, and you know John, uh, and you know Asa from this live stream. Asa is is traveling today, uh, but I also want to shout out uh, my thanks and appreciation for our other colleagues at the Electronic Intifada, Michael Brown, Leah Caldwell, Omar Kermi, Maureen Murphy, Asa, of course, and Tamara Nassar, who uh, does so many things, including making this live stream work as smoothly and as proficiently as it it does. And uh, Tamara, maybe we can put the website up and, uh, again, This is a reminder for all of you who already know the Electronic Intifada, but for those who are just joining this live stream and learning about us for the first time, we want you to know that we are an online publication that's been around for 20 years. We publish uh, news analysis about Palestine that you won't get anywhere else. We are completely independent, nonprofit. We are supported by you, readers and viewers like you. And since the start of this genocide in Gaza, we, uh, we have uh, been um, publishing way more than we usually do, uh, from, uh, particularly from our writers in Gaza. And one of the people who uh, works closely with them, who I didn't mention earlier, but of course uh, is, is very much part of the team, is David Cronin. You also know him as a writer and david is one of our very fine editors and you can see right there the amazing uh, articles the re- reportage from the ground in gaza that uh, we are publishing there was the piece from gaza abed that uh, nora mentioned at the beginning the horrifying massacre in marazi camp and we're very concerned about our friends and colleagues in Merazi. we have several Of them, there we heard from uh, from two of them this morning, letting us know that they were okay, but that the situation there is absolutely uh, horrific. Uh, All of this, again, as I say, is done with your support. December, I, I I have to say, I the thing I like to do is to spend time reporting, writing, reading, editing, uh, but. Every December, we raise most of the funds that we use in the upcoming year to do our reportage. And this year, it's particularly important because of the amount of extra work we're doing, the amount of extra writing we're publishing from Gaza, and we do pay all our writers in Gaza to make sure that they have the support they need. So if you can... Please do make a donation. Now, you can go to the website and hit Donate Now. The other thing is we write in the description to this video right down below, there are links to uh, two different donation portals. One, you can use credit card or PayPal. That's Network for Good. The other, you can use credit card, Apple Pay, or you can make a donation directly from a U.S. bank account. Of course, donations are welcome from anywhere and they are tax deductible for people in the United States. And so again, thank you so much. We're, I, I should say also, we did announce a matching challenge a couple of weeks ago. We met the match and we're so grateful to everyone who donated, but we're not done. We still do need to raise some funds to make sure that we have the resources we need to keep doing this work in the coming year. And the other ways you can support us, of course, click on that Get Updates link and sign up for our newsletter so that you can evade social media censorship. And please share our articles, share the videos, uh, let people know about what we do. This is one of the ways we can uh, answer the call of our friends and colleagues in Gaza to keep talking about Gaza, to keep informing the world. And one thing I want to say again that we are so grateful and humbled by the support we get. And I want to say, if you can make a donation, please do. But if it's going to cause you hardship, if it means you or someone in your family is going to go without something you need, please don't. Support us in the other ways. But if you have uh, extra money, you can make a little bit of an extra donation on behalf of those who can't because all of this work is free for everyone. It's for the whole world. That's why we do it. And uh, we do it with your support. Mm -hmm. I went on a little bit long, uh, Nora, but I just (laughs) wanted to to make sure that we really say thank you to everyone who has already uh, shown their support for us. And we want to, oh, one thing I will say I have in my notes to add is you can, on either of those two links that are in the description, set up a monthly donation. If you want to it's a way to sustain us over the year and uh, that also helps a great deal and thanks to everyone who's already done so we love you and we can't do this without you
0: indeed thank you so much Um, and with that uh, John um, I know that the resistance is hand delivering uh, pancakes we've we've said in the past pancakes uh, on top of jelly beans Walk us through the uh, latest resistance jellybean videos.
7: Okay, guys, we've got a lot of them for today, so,
0: so <laughs> but. busy.
7: So this first video is um, is from Gaza City, and we see a fighter carrying uh, what is called a shawaz. Um, he's hand carrying this explosive, um, and you can see on the right hand side there, you can see the Merkava tank. Uh, in the neighborhood. And again, this is something that um, the soldiers don't get out of the tanks ever.
0: Um, So they don't see him coming.
7: So they don't see him coming yet. They see him right now. We've cut the video in an effort to not be censored, but you can see him lying down on the ground there, placing the explosive charge. Um, The tank moves forward. It explodes and he gets out of the way um, for people asking. There's a freeze frame of him there. You can see him. Uh, getting out of the way um, the, the unbelievable courage I don't know how many times we want to loop this uh, I think as many as we can because it's just um, it's a really remarkable um, snapshot into the um, both the qualitative um, advances of the resistance this shawaz device is an explosively formed uh, penetrator which I'll describe to you uh, in a moment but it's a type of weapon that has come out um, since the ceasefire, since the pause um, as Israeli positions become more fixed, um, the resistance is able to use different weaponry um, than they used in the first half of the war um, to target um, in different ways uh, the Israeli forces that are inside the Gaza Strip and this is from this weekend uh, a weekend that the Israeli that the Israeli military said was it's uh, most difficult weekend of the ground war which is now uh, 55 days on and so I think we're getting from these videos an idea and we will from the, pre, from the ones that follow uh, an idea why it was the toughest um, for the Israelis so again he's getting in position what we don't hear with the sound is that they see him in the tank coming at the last moment and they poke out of their porthole and fire a shot at him which he avoids while putting the blast in the back corner of the tread, which is to disable the tank from moving. But then he's pointed this explosively formed penetrator towards the door, the back door of the Merkeva tank, which is the weakest um, spot on the tank. And Mm -hmm. so um, I have a clip here of an American Delta Force soldier from Iraq who takes, uh, less than one minute to explain um, what an explosively formed penetrator, an EFP bomb is. Um, but in short, it's, uh, instead of exploding out uh, in all directions, uh, it explodes in, uh, in a direction. So when he's aiming that explosive at the back door of the tank, it's firing directly at the torb. Sorry. I, I talked over that for you tomorrow. Do you want to start? Can we start that one again? Do you want to
3: explain what an EFP does
7: yeah, for the audience? form
3: projectile. Yeah, it's a hot metal. It's a copper plate. Um, and then that gets pushed with the explosives behind it. And it's packaged in a cylindrical uh, tube or container. And so you have this conical shaped uh, copper. and Explosives behind it. It's primed from the rear. And then when it shoots out uh, it envelops on itself and then forms a hot metal uh, copper uh, projectile, and it rips through everything. There's nothing that can stop that stuff. Yeah. yeah, Any armor at the time anybody was using, it wasn't stopped, it was going right through that stuff. And usually, by the time it triggered on the front of the vehicle, uh, front of the vehicle, if it was, um, and they were trying that at the time, they were trying uh, timers, uh, command detonated stuff, and then trips on uh, uh, passive infrared or red, uh, you break a beam and it goes off.
7: All right, so those are the various different ways that you can detonate. We've seen the Palestinians use that Shawaz device to rig them up for booby traps inside a house um, and then to detonate them remotely. Um, that fighter that we just saw in that video is, uh, is remotely detonating. Um, that and you can do it with very basic uh they can do it with cell phones they can do it with um they, they've been calling um the the palestinians have been calling them television bombs because they're remotely dedicated uh detonated using uh like a channel changer it's a I I basic.
8: wondered what they meant by a uh, uh, television bombs i i guess that that explains it then
7: yeah there's no i don't have, there's no translation for it uh think it's uh but yeah, so that's 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 a weapon that has been introduced um, in the second half of this war. And when we see what that Delta Force soldier, he's talking about that from Iraq, um, they were they were introduced in Iraq in a in a, a sort of a large scale manner. Um, but very um, the, the Palestinian resistance, of course, has reverse engineered and um, really perfected these weapons. So when you see um, a bomb go off, people saw on that previous clip, the tank pulls forward, which might look like the tank is getting away from the main part of that explosion. But as that Delta Force soldier described, it's actually doing the opposite. It's giving room for that explosively formed projectile to aim itself at the door of the tank, inside which are the crew. And so we, uh, we saw the Israelis admit to the most deadly weekend. They lost 25 soldiers this weekend. They usually just say in the north uh, or in Khan Yunis, um, but they don't tell us where these soldiers were killed. Um, but you can uh, imagine um, that at least a few of them were there because all that has to happen with an armored vehicle is for it to pierce. Um, you don't have to explode the entire vehicle um, for it to be deadly because it pierces the armor and any piece that pierces the armor um, becomes uh, a hot piece of metal that's flying around inside what is effectively a bathtub that the soldiers are sitting in um, that protects them from uh, explosions underneath the tank. So if it's pierced above that We're looking for sure at serious casualties from that, and that that um, to deliver that bomb by hand. I think social media kind of was was uh, very impressed by that. And when you when you juxtapose that with um, the footage that we saw um, coming out the other day from the president of Israel, uh, President Herzog was shown on the Gaza border using a Sharpie marker and writing messages on 155 millimeter shells that are then fired into Gaza, um, killing, as we know, more than 20,000 civilians have been killed at this point. The juxtaposition between this guy hand placing this device in the most vulnerable spot, he could have put that anywhere, he could have put it on the side and turned and ran, but he goes up, and executes his mission right to the final moment of the mission. He doesn't pull away two minutes early, which still would have made um, an impressive spectacle. Um, he's carrying out his mission. And then as Abu Obeidah, the spokesperson for the Kasam Brigades has said repeatedly throughout this war, these fighters are returning home To their bases to report on these operations. These are not. John,
8: John, the the factor here that I think the Israelis don't can't contend with is is the bravery, is the courage, because to be able to, you know, there are weapons that are made that are designed to hit a tank or an armored vehicle from a distance in order to keep the soldiers who are firing those weapons safe and the defensive systems of the tanks also depend on that distance I think you were talking about this last time with the trophy system the trophy system needs that distance in order to function Uh, and it's also it's assumed that nobody is going to get that close to a tank right nobody's going to be that crazy to do that But the Palestinians are able to defeat these tanks because they're willing to violate that assumption that nobody is going to walk right up to a tank in the middle of a battlefield. The same, I know we're going to talk about this later, goes for the RPGs because, again, they are doing that from such close range. The one thing I want to say also that I thought about when I saw this picture of Isaac Herzog the president of Israel, who of course in the in the West is portrayed as this peace loving figure, that, almost the contrast to Benjamin Netanyahu, is uh, thought about our dear friend Rifat uh, Al arair who in one of his first appearances on our live stream talked about how his only weapon was the expo marker, the markers he used to highlight and make notes in the books he loved so much, and and just look at all the different things you can do with a, a marker. You can use it to enlighten people, uh, as Rifat did, or you can use it to send a message of death in this most horrific and disgusting
7: way by Isaac Herzog. And the fact that there's just even no discussion about that, that that's just normal, because the Israelis actually do this all the time. They did it back in 2006 um, in the war in Lebanon, and they got little kids from Northern Israel to write on them like as part of a school project. It's like, it's totally demented. It's uh, really unbelievable. Um, And so the Shawaz device showed this unbelievable courage. And when you said that that it's crazy to get that close to a tank, nobody in the world should know better than the Israelis that the Palestinians get close to their tanks. I lived in Jenin for a number of years and was on the streets with the kids, uh, shout out badges, who used to climb on top of the tank and attempt to pull the gun off the top of the tank, riding through Janine on top of the tank. And when I at first got there and saw this, and also believed at that time that it was crazy, and he hopped off the tank as the tank drove off, and, and I said, what are you What are you doing? Like I don't even know if I said it eloquently. I just said, like, what are you doing? That is insane. And he just looked at me and he said, trying to take the gun off. Like, what do you think I'm doing? And I just like carried on with this activity. So the Israelis, they policed the West Bank for, um, you know, for the entire second intifada, fighting against kids with stones who were trying to climb on their tanks um, and get closer to their tanks. This a lot of this knowledge uh, of how you can move around a tank was actually uh, learned by children that were fighting in their communities in their refugee camps um, on a daily basis and and as they they saw that in fact the closer you are to the tank actually the safer you are which is what the kids would explain to me over the first few days uh, in the field to keep me alive essentially um, is that in that space around the tank the tank has the least capability Um, in that close distance. So that fighter could have used, in that Gaza City example, he could have used a Yasin uh, RPG that we talked about. He could have positioned himself right behind the door and blasted it, but they decided uh, on the ground that a more effective weapon would be to hand deliver uh, what they call a shawaz, uh, EFP, and aim it at the back door of the tank, but not just aim it at the back door of the tank, place it on the tread at the back of the tank to disable the tank um, so that it cannot move and um, then the possibility comes um, let's let's watch it one more time from from across the street there's tanks all through the neighborhood there's drones in the air constantly he goes right for safety which is again something that I'm not sure how much in Gaza they have experience. That that kid that's planting that device, I don't think he was even old enough to know when there was tanks uh, operating inside um, Gaza, but he operates safely, moving out of the way immediately. And then if we can see here, he's lying down on the ground. That's why they put the arrow there, because they want you to see that he's completing his mission to such a degree that he's lying down underneath the tank to place it and that's a direct hit um and that and he goes back to the base. that's him getting away and that's him getting away nice good freeze frame there tomorrow yeah. that's him getting away from the blast um yeah green triangle wow. for hamas militant um yeah and we'll talk more about this with ali later on because there's a video from today that talks about this but this kind yeah. of that green arrow um you know, green for Hamas, like that—that that kind of subtlety that they're putting into these videos, communicating with the world mm. um, without saying a word—it's um, just really remarkable. But that green triangle is a really heroic moment. So, social media was very was was uh, awe inspired by this, um, and and couldn't believe that people would do this. But but let's show tomorrow from 2014 in the 2014 war. Um, they, the Palestinian um, Nukbah Commandos, the elite um, frogmen, um, carried out an attack in uh, July of 2014 on Zakim Beach that originally the Israelis said um, that they had uh, repelled the attack by um, the, the frogmen who came from the sea in scuba gear uh, up onto the shore. Um, And so they come up onto the shore. If that video doesn't load, I can read the the text from uh, the description from the Israeli media. Um, So this was the introduction to the world of frog frogmen, the Nukbah elite forces um, that became uh, famous. Um, So this is just north of the northwest corner of the Gaza Strip. And in July, the 2014 war, uh, the 51-day war, the Israelis had said that these frogmen had attacked. You can see them here coming out of the water, carrying explosives out of the water, um, hiding in the berms here along the, the shoreline, and attempting to move up to an army base, which is on the corner, uh, is on the coast uh, in Zakim, just north of the, um, the border. And this base was overrun again on October 7th. Um, and the soldiers and officers in the base were killed. So this so this attack in July, the Israelis told the world it was repelled. Um, and then in December, this video was released. And you could see the fighters moving up. This is an Israeli camera, that's them moving across the road. Um, and a tank shows up, the description of the video um, says the video opens with a military map looking at the code names of the locations and the surveillance cameras. So this is leaked from the Israelis. You can see the fighters there coming from the sea, moving through those berms um, and attacking a a military base. They had to stop in the weeds there and take off their flippers and their wetsuits um, and to get into their gear. They're under fire there. Um, You can see the fire um, all around them there, Um, but they make it through and now you can see in that video they're up on the berm beside the road preparing their um, devices. They're throwing grenades uh, up on the road and here comes the tank um, to try to get them. Again, we've taken the audio out so that we don't... um, get these uh, videos taken down, the same reason we describe them as jelly beans, just uh, in, the, in the hopes that these videos won't get taken down. And
0: this um, is t- 2014. This is 2014. To reiterate, so this, yeah.
7: is, to reiterate this, is, uh, this has happened before is the point of this story. This unbelievable courage when the resistance didn't have the same uh, devices that they have now. Um, so, th- this is the description from, from the Israeli press. After the fighters cross the road and take cover in the depression in the sand, IDF forces engage them from the east. A Merkava tank and a bulldozer arrive as well. And one of the ter- one, they say terrorists, one of the Qassam frogmen runs up to the tank and hangs explosives on it. And on the uh, Israeli audio, they shout out in Hebrew, number two, number two, he's on your tank. He's on your tank. Drive." Here he goes. He literally hangs it on the tank. That's the tank barrel that you see. Then he gets back. He goes back under cover there, and the tank, and the explosions of detonates. Having to swim with the explosive meant that they didn't, they weren't able to bring a shawaz with them. Um, but look at them fighting right here, right in front of the tank, right from the berm, um, and so. Just wanted to show that to people um, that that this is before, this has happened before, this is part of a tactical, this is part of their tactical approach. Look at them fighting within the the zone of the tank there. Um, And of course getting hit by helicopters because by this point they call in helicopter gunships um, and they go back to the sea. After bombing the tank, um, they make it all the way across Uh, Unfortunately, this operation uh, did amount to a martyrdom mission, Um, but just incredible courage um, that those fighters, and to repeat, those were frogmen that entered from the sea, came up underwater with explosives, made it all the way across this open space up to the base uh, and and attacked them. And then if we want to just show one more, uh, Tamara, if we could just show um, the, the night after uh, the is the footage of Gaza City hanging the shawaz on the tank. Um, let's go to the footage from the IDF. The IDF released this, you can see there, another guy right beside a tank, hanging an explosive, attempting to hang an explosive on the side of the tank. This is IDF drone footage that they released to show that um, that they can use close air support. This is what the Israelis said the way that close air support works with the ground forces Um, and you can see that they're showing a fighter right beside the tank attempting to hang explosives on it and the israeli response of course is not to dismount from their tank where they outnumber the fighters by a considerable margin they also have uh, escorts for those armored vehicles so there could have been um, you know as many as 25 soldiers descend on that area uh, and fight, but they don't. They stay in the tank. They call in air support, and the Israeli video shows them blowing up half the neighborhood, um, trying to find these two guys.
8: But they, they, the Israelis claim that they uh, killed the Palestinian fighters, but. I didn't see that in it, the video. Yeah, I
7: cut that out of the video because it's not clear that they cut the video, they spliced the video and showed them bombing from the air or something.
8: There's yeah, no connection
7: but, to it being a fighter. Correct, fighters.
8: That, that's what I mean. Even, even the full version that, they, that the Israeli army released doesn't show definitively that they uh, hit those two uh, brave fighters.
7: And that's the closest that we get to seeing Palestinian fighters in Israeli videos. But look at that. He's right up beside the tank doing the same thing. So it's not just one guy who's impassioned or maybe particularly angry or has some particular level of courage. Um, This is a fighting force that's prepared to fight this type of war and that's one of the tactics that they're using. Um, and we've and they, seen that they
8: use yes. they use this the these tactics John we, we've seen it in video after video after video uh whether it's the the Shawa bombs bombs that they're using like the the expo- explosively formed penetrators whether it's the RPGs the Eocene 105 as they call it or whether it is the sniper rifle or uh or landmines, explosives that they set in a fixed position and then detonate, there's a consistency that indicates a very high level of training and consistent training across the board. Because, as you say, it's not just one or two individual, but video after video. And I think we're going to see some RPG rockets uh, in some of the upcoming videos. But I've been reading about these RPGs, John, uh, and they're incredible weapons invented by the Soviet Union, perfected by the Soviet Union, and then made in, in a number of countries. The point is, they are, they are simple, they're available, but it still takes an enormous amount of skill
7: to use them. Uh, Well, actually, that's even better than that, Ali. They took those two weapons from the Soviet Union, the RPG-2 and the RPG-7, and they reverse engineered them and joined them into one weapon um, so that they could get the benefits of the one and the benefits of the other, one being simple um, and one being the ability to mass-produce them. And then the Palestinians themselves are manufacturing these um, in small underground um, facilities um, and they've clearly been at this for the last, um, you know, the the Yassin program um, itself. The Yassin program started in 2003, so it's a 19-year-old weapons program, is that right? 20? What year is it? 20-year-old <laughs> weapons program. Um, uh, we've seen the Al Ghul sniper rifle that we're going to talk about later. Um, That's an 11-year project. The Kassam rockets, those began just after the beginning of the Second Intifada in 2000-2001. So the rocket program is 22, 23 years old. Um, And so you see a consistent dedication to this fight that's happening right now. This is not uh, a makeshift uh, response. This defense of Gaza has been planned for decades, and now they actually have the capacity, the manufacturing capacity, to enable uh, an army to fight back and defend their communities in such a way that Israel is already saying, um, they're already starting to leak out, okay, we're not going to defeat Hamas totally, um, you know, starting to, to calibrate a little bit of those, we're going to wipe out Hamas and then de-radicalize the Gaza Strip after making everybody uh, orphans and driving them out of their houses, you know, this kind of ridiculous talk that we spent, we had to deal with for weeks of this war, um, that's just clearly not true. The Palestinians are able to fight this battle um, and they waited until the point in the struggle that they could fight that battle. Because what we're seeing with all of this material that they've created is that they could have perhaps fought. Um, a smaller scale battle at previous times in the last number of years um, and clearly chose not to until they were ready and prepared. And during that time, they're training their fighters consistently every day. And we've seen that because of October 7th, um, some of the Israeli intelligence people talk about how they were watching them train. Uh, in the open air in Gaza for years before the attack and all the way down to um, watching them train by breaching, uh, uh, make mock-ups of the wall itself. Um, So they've been training. They trained their fighters to fire um, the RPG. Um, They built the RPGs themselves to handle the warheads that are, reverse engineered so they find something like a soviet weapon that is useful uh simple um you know like the ak-47 doesn't break down like western weapons often do doesn't jam Um, everybody can use them and then distributed those um to trained fighters in large numbers and that's what's made um this battle for israel um you know israel was i'm sure expecting to just Uh, fight for a couple months and then withdraw, but they have absolutely nothing to show for the fight other than the massacre of civilians. And so So, now they're in a place where they're trying to talk about uh, a next phase of the war where it's going to be perhaps slightly less intense. um, But they're not talking about uh, an end game to the fight with Kassam because Kassam is more capable today, and we can see it from their resistance reports, um, that they're more capable of fighting today than at any point and so let's move to the to the second section here and we're going to talk about um, this concept that the idf uh, proposed last week to its people in hebrew you talked about it ali that they had um, complete operational control that was the word that they used in hebrew complete operational control Absol- and- Absolute,
8: absolutely Absolute <laughs> operational control. Even stronger word. Absolute right. operation control.
7: So, yeah. so, and then we watched these videos um, from Shujai and Jabalia. Those were the two areas that they said they had absolute operational control. Um, these are the two, and, and this is Saraya Al-Qud. So this is not Qassam. This is Islamic Jihad. Um, walking, we talked about them walking through walls. Um, this is them walking through Buildings from neighboring buildings climbing through the buildings, um, which is something that they know because they live in this neighborhood. Um, And one of the things about the Islamic Jihad videos is that they, the Sarai Al-Quds is the name of their armed wing. They follow a little longer with their shots. And so you can actually see these guys navigating between the alley. Surprise
8: is not barefoot,
7: though to get into position to create a sniper's position. So at this point, nobody's been in a window um, because they came in through the back of the house. That the fact that they have an entire unit of soldiers looking at these buildings, the sniper is able to bring his Dragunov rifle into position without ever going to a window and picks them off one by one. Um, And that's the kind of fight that you see um, when you don't is have that a operational
8: shot right. rifle john is that that suffer- Yeah, it is yeah. A sing- so uh, but what uh, what's interesting because you point out they do not go right up to the window the, the, the sura al quds fighters sura al quds of course being the military wing of islamic jihad the equivalent of Qas- as Qassam is to hamas sura al quds is to palestinian islamic jihad but what we often see, I think we'll see this in some of the other videos, is the Israelis sit right in the window. and at <laughs> like that's they've never
0: been trained
7: before. Either. Yeah.
0: Yeah, they move they move in a group. They, not, they, they used to have stone themselves. Control. Right, right, right. No, that's it. Yeah. yeah.
7: They're used to having stones. Sorry to interrupt you, Nora. They're, no, they're no, used no. to having stones thrown at them by kids. They're used to shooting people who didn't have anything to do with it on the street. They're not ready for a trained uh, for a trained force that's been studying, right. not only just practicing but also studying the theory of fighting um, and what you're trying to achieve. And look at passing the weapons through this alleyway, climbing over the alley. Um, And showing this is like whatever the opposite of absolute (laughs) operational control is when you have fighters climbing through the buildings in order to get better shots at your soldiers. Um, So what we're seeing is Palestinians with absolute uh, operational control over these neighborhoods and moving through the walls in these ways.
0: Walking uh, through the walls. Walking through right. the
7: walls, which the Israelis in 2002, uh, their uh, uh, postmodern philosopher department um, made this this thing like in the battle uh, of um, uh, the 2002 battles that they were really pinned down in the places like the old city of Nablus uh, or in Janine. And so these IDF uh, philosophers said, you know, like maybe... Maybe we need to look at things differently. We don't, we, need, we don't need to look at a house as a house or a wall as a wall. They said, we can reinvent the, the architecture. That was their, their terminology. We can reimagine the architecture. And they were saying, you know, we would blow through the walls and do all these things that Palestinians have already done and don't have postmodern philosophers describing. Um, but reimagining the landscape was the way the Israelis talked about it, um, and I don't know how much more reimagining you could do than this kind of movement um, um, through that area. And so, is there is is there? I'm not sure if we have the second one from Shijia, um, but we have one from today, uh, or sorry, we have Jabalia. So this is Jabalia. They're able to fight. Uh, in Jabalia, with absolute operational control, they don't even have operational control over the building next door to them. And this is a force uh, getting hit by a thermobaric grenade. Uh-huh. And this is a shot of a of their tank being dragged away from Jabalia, where they say they have operational control, um, and they're being hit literally from the next building and dragging their gear. Uh, away and so that's Jabalia.
8: Last time we did see the other footage of them having to tow disabled tanks out of uh, I don't remember which 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 neighborhood it was in but you know this is now presumably a common scene of them having to tow their junk out of Gaza.
7: And see he hits he hits that window. He hits that window from next door, so again, they're not only putting themselves in position to do this, but they're also, they have military acumen when it comes down to the moment. They're hitting their shot. They're pointing at the window they're aiming at, and they're hitting the shot. Um, and, And if anything, they're better at it now as the war has gone on because these fighters are learning incredible amounts that you could never, never train for. Um, this is the kind of stuff that is that you learn in battle um, and that this is, I mean, this is in the broader picture, this is the kind of stuff that makes it really hard to see going back to a world before October 7th. Because you not only have the hundreds of widow, uh, you know, uh, orphaned children uh, in Gaza, people who have watched this horror happen in front of them, but you also have tens of thousands literally of skilled fighters who now have been fighting uh for 55 days of a ground war and what happens the day that that's over though is the implication that without a a prisoner exchange or without um some kind of a a a trajectory for for a just peace for for palestinians that these tens of thousands of fighters are gonna uh, uh accept not fighting for an indefinite period of time when when their people are being attacked all over like they're being attacked in Janine today um, and Janine doesn't have the West Bank, doesn't have the weapons capacity or the training um, that the Gaza Strip has been allowed since 2005 when um, the Palestinian resistance drove the Israelis out of Gaza in 2005 and allowed for the development of this weapons industry that had begun before, but after 2005 can really become entrenched, the tunnel network becomes entrenched. I mean, we're on day 80-something now, we haven't even really talked about the tunnels, because they have been, right. the Israelis haven't even begun that process. There's an entire architecture underneath the ground that the Israelis call the Metro, uh, because it 's as big as some uh, metropolis subway station uh, subway uh, networks they haven 't even touched that they 're fighting on the outside levels against guerrilla tactics using uh, weapons that everybody in the world has John, Admittedly, it, it strikes
8: uh, it strikes yeah. me though that we 're looking at something i mean you you tell me if i 'm wrong but we 've seen conventional war in you know, in different places in the world. And we've seen guerrilla war. I've seen a lot of comparisons between the tactics of the Palestinian resistance and the Viet Cong. And that's probably one of the very close parallels, including the tunnel network and the ability to move like ghosts, basically. The Americans, too, used to talk about we're fighting ghosts in Vietnam. They could never see them coming. And yet they were able to inflict uh, severe pain on the uh, vastly equipped American invaders who, despite dropping million, literally millions of tons of bombs on Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, were unable to defeat the resistance there. But I wonder, listening to you and watching these videos, if we're seeing something new here, because Hassam Oh, the Palestinian resistance, not just Hamas, but that being the main, the largest group presumably, are organised in a sense like a state, like a conventional army, in terms of their their order of battle, the fact that they have different brigades and divisions that cover different parts of Gaza, the fact that there is standardisation of their weapon systems, of their training. Presumably, they have very effective uh, command and control because we can see that they are maintaining that up to this minute. So they have a lot of aspects or characteristics of a conventional army, a conventional military, but they fight like guerrillas. Is, uh, is, is there anything to that or is that also true of past
7: guerrilla armies? I mean, I think that like to find an example of a war like this where you have an entrenched um, dug in population that prepared for the fight for this long, I mean, the Israelis are very quick to say that there's no um, no analogy um, to it because even um, even the way that the tunnels were used in Vietnam was a was a lot more defensive um, defensive tunnels. um you can read in the Israeli um, field reports they're talking about. Um, nine men uh, ambushes from three separate tunnels on one unit. So Palestinians are using three separate attack tunnels to carry out a single ambush of the Israelis. And they're getting back and reporting on this um, because there's no way for them to advance and clear any kind of territory. Um, And that's what the Americans ultimately were doing in Vietnam was they just completely, like they napalmed the villages Completely destroyed everything that was on the top, and then gassed underneath the tunnels. Um, we're, we're not sure yet. We don't know if the Palestinians have um, continuity, uh, contiguity uh, between the, the the tunnel networks. Um, does, does Gaza City connect to Khan Yunis? We we don't know that, and the Israelis don't know that yet. Um, um, either, yeah. but yes, the structure of the force has been created as um, you know, a hybrid army, as set up as an army um, with with like you said, set up separate divisions, def- separate commands in each area. And we know from the fight um, that's been happening um, that these commanders have been in charge of these positions for years, decades in some cases. Um, some of these commanders. Um, so, they're not constantly promoted up a chain to become, um, you know, uh, cushy uh, bosses. They're, they're, field, they're battalion commanders on the ground in these areas that are leading this area. Um, you know, Wissam Farhat was leading the Shujaiya Battalion before he was assassinated. He was leading it consistently for 14 years. Um, uh, same with Ahmed Gandour, who was the northern commander for Kassam, who was killed. Um, he, the Israelis have been trying to kill him since 2002. They had five different attempts at him. You know, they talk about uh, nine different attempts at Mohammed Dayf, the, the, the commander of the Qassam brigades. So they've been trying to get these guys for a long time, but they have had the ability to stay within their units, training. Those forces to fight contiguously within these, uh, so between Shuja'iya and Jabalia, which are side by side, and for the Israelis to tell their people that they have operational control over Shajaiya and Jabalia is that's them telling their people the two places that they know in Gaza, um, because they got smoked there in the past. The, sa- the first Intifada started in Jabalia, um, and of course, like. If you were to ask Rafat about the battle uh, of Shujaia, if you, you know said, "What do you remember about the battle of Shujaia?" Rafat would say, "Which battle of Shujaia?" Mm-hmm. Right? Because there was, uh, a of in um, there was a battle of Shujaia in 1987. There was a battle of Shujaia in 2014 that the Israelis uh, are still have ghosts of. And now the most fierce fighting in this war has been in Jabalia and Shujaia. Shujaia is where the Golani Brigade. Um, experienced their commander team as they call it a team of commanders who got triple ambush they got ambushed in a building they called for reinforcements the commander's team sent in reinforcements they got hit too so now it's a double ambush and Israelis report on the communications coming between those ambushed and calling out to the APCs that we see the guys not outside of the armored vehicles, calling to the armored vehicles saying, get out of your vehicles and come in and help us. And they came in and helped them and they got smoked too. So triple ambushes. Um, that killed nine um, uh, from the Golani Brigade just in that few minutes. Two senior commanders, a lieutenant colonel and a colonel. Um, two of the most senior commanders to be killed in battle in Israel in 50 years. Um, and so you're saying you have operational control over this area. Of course, Shuja'i is also where they, they massacred their own absolute operational control.
8: Not, yeah, absolute operational control. But that reminds me also just just uh, two things uh, that I listened to over the weekend. One was uh, an interview. This was on an Indian YouTube channel of all, all uh, things, somewhat pro-Israeli from the sense I got, but it was a, uh, an interview with Ephraim Halevi, the former head of the Mossad, and he said very bluntly in that interview that uh, Israel completely underestimated the fighting capabilities of the Palestinian resistance, and he also said that he didn't think Israel would succeed in its goals in this war. That's the former head of the Mossad, Mm -hmm. Israel's notorious spy agency. And also Dan Halutz, the former Israeli army chief of staff, who was the chief of staff, I believe, during the uh, war with Lebanon, the last war with Lebanon, also said that Israel would not win this war.
7: And he was the one who declared victory in Lebanon like two days into the war.
8: Right. And we all know what happened next. And for those who don't,
7: Israel lost. But um, yeah, just one more thing about when you're saying Vietnam, uh, Ali, because, yeah, they are starting to say that they're losing. And in Vietnam, when the Americans were losing, um, they did they when their commanders would tell them to go patrol in the elephant grass and the fighters, the American fighters said, no way, it's too dangerous. We don't want to do these operations. The guerrillas just kill us every time we go into these areas. Um, which is the equivalent of getting out of your tanks uh, in Israeli uh, vernacular, that that gave rise to this uh, concept called fragging, where the fighters of their own force would grenade their commanders. And basically what they would do is they would put a grenade in their tent at night with a pin in it that said, you know, if you send us into the elephant grass one more time, this pin will be taken out of the the grenade. Um, And that kind of dis- um, uh, discord within the force uh, made it very difficult for the Americans to fight. Yesterday, the Golani uh, brigade removed a company commander who told his fighters to go into a house, and they said, "I'm not going into that house because of the booby traps that we've seen everywhere." Um, and there was the battle, a fight between the um, the the commander, the company commander, and his soldiers about going into this house. And the Israeli army sided with the soldiers who were too scared to go into the house. Um, And so, uh, yeah, you could see these kind of things, um, that these ambushes are in the heads of Israeli soldiers.
5: um,
7: And the, the complexity of the ambushes that we've seen in these videos, we could show these videos, we could have a four hour show just showing videos, the the detailed ambushes setting up
8: well, uh, Israeli some, let's soldiers. let's show some yeah.
7: more, John. Yeah, so let's show we, today. So this is from we, today, have, guys. We,
8: we get through the ones we have in uh, in the time we have left.
0: Yeah, this let's one came out things. uh just before we started our live stream. So, yeah, set this up for us, John.
8: Yeah,
7: well, I actually haven't seen this because uh, we were <laughs> yeah, just about to go I, on I
8: watched it once. Uh, I usually like to watch them repeatedly. So that's an elevated uh, firing uh,
7: position hitting that uh, tank. That clearly is a hit. Um, and again, we're seeing um, um that were built by Gaza. Every weapon we're seeing is built in Gaza.
8: And the Yasin again. This is basically uh, a modified reverse-engineered RPG-7. And the that's point right. about the RPG-7. We should pause it there for a second. Yeah, let's pause, pause that if we can. We'll come back to this. But the the thing about the RPG-7 is that if you're using it at the very long range, the Israelis can defend against it. Their, their trophy system or, or whatever it is can kick in. But again, it's the courage of the fighters that they're getting within the close range that this very simple weapon, I mean, well-designed weapon, but relatively simple and available and light the, and light is able to defeat a multi-million dollar merkava tank because of the willingness of the fighters to get that up close and personal and yeah. this appears to be i'm not exactly sure what we're looking at is this a blackboard or a piece of armor i'm not sure exactly yes. but they say um which is so the Qasan Brigade, and then to final Aqsa, the um, the uh, name of the operation, Al-Aqsa Flood. And they say, Tem Salas at Selass, uh where I think it says Dabba, but it's not.
3: Welcome back. And are uh, you listening? Welcome back and uh, you're listening to the pan-african journal and that's going to conclude our program for today and uh, that was a uh, panel discussion on the situation uh in uh, gaza if you'd like to have access uh, to this program all you need to do is go to our website at uh, the pan-african radio network that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash pan-african journal. And if you'd like to uh, read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the music of Kenny Durham, legendary jazz trumpeter. This is from the album entitled Jazz Contrast. This is Albayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.